What? All right, well, welcome to the first edition of ConCon. It's going to be here. I'm DR. I'm Ben. Um, We're Bender. We, we are Bender. We have been really interested in consciousness for a very long time. Uh, and I was trying to remember today what the first times that we talked about this. It has to go back, like, pretty early in our friendship. Um, Probably, like, early days of Burning Man. And Well, I'm wondering, if, like, the first day we met, if it ever came up. I think we talked mostly about Mormonism and stuff. <laughs> That, yeah, at that house had party. that black IPA, the Black of Mormon IPA. Yeah, but I don't know if consciousness came up there, but it de- definitely came up like pretty soon. Pretty soon, yeah. Yeah, maybe uh, when we stopped binge drinking so much. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, yeah, I think I started. I think for me, it was like reading all, starting to read because it was when I got to Pittsburgh that I basically started reading. I don't think I ever really read books like of general interest in science and stuff before that. And it felt like, you know, it's coming out of my Mormonism cocoon. And I kind of like was reading like, uh, the selfish gene and, um, the God delusion and I'm trying to think of some of those early ones. Uh, this book Karen by Karen Armstrong, a case for God and the evolution of God. And it really like gave me for the, fr- I should be leaning a little bit more, right? I mean, you sound good in, 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 okay. my, in my ears. It gave me for the first time the, confidence and the idea that like these problems that I had considered to be unsolvable or these things that I had thought about in my kind of Mormon youth that were like oh you can't answer that question oh yeah you actually you can answer a lot of those questions like I found really satisfactory answers and so I think on that chase actually I remember what it was I think it was yes I know exactly what it was I read Waking Up by Sam Harris and there's a piece in that book where he says and that's like about the nature of consciousness, which we know is like a total mystery and no one understands it. And that really like got my hackles up around the religion thing of people being like, oh, you can't understand it. It's a total mystery. And I think that's one of the biggest things to me that's like, fuck you. Well, let's dig into it. Like I, I'd, I'd kind of refuse to think that certain things are not understandable. And I think that actually kicked off that. It was the first time I'd seen somebody say something like that that I had been trusting and respecting and reading the book. And I'm like, wait, I, I need to dig into this more. Yeah, actually, that brings up some memories of my own past as a young. And I, I think that um, the Kogato ergo sum. Whenever yeah, I learned yeah. that in school, you know, that sort of was um, kind of like an eye-opening thing. And when you think about like, I think therefore I am. If that's sort of your baseline, right? I remember I was actually in a um, either Sunday school or like a, uh, a youth group program, and I was telling people I was like, "How do you know what you're not looking at even exists? Like, basically, what's behind you?" And they're like, "Well, you just turn around and you look." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, but you're then you're not seeing behind you the other way. How do you know that disappears from existence?" And I'm sitting there like blowing these kids' mind, and the pastor walks by. And he was like, Ben, that's dangerous existentialism or something like that. And I was oh, like, I don't man. even, I didn't even know that word. But then I was like, <laughs> what? And I think he was, he was like tongue in cheek a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but then of course that sort of put me into like a little bit of a rabbit hole. Like what is existentialism? And then, yeah, I sort of pursuing those kinds of ideas. You very quickly lead to like pursuit of consciousness. Sort yeah. Of mysteries. Yeah, kind of like all roads somehow end up leading you back there mm-hmm. um, if you start pushing hard enough. And I think, you know, we're um, 
gearing up to go to this um, Science of Consciousness conference in um, Sicily uh, in May. And one of the speakers is Roger Penrose, who's like a physicist. And I think it's just like in, um, what's his name, Crick from Watson and Crick that um, found DNA. And then he, immediately they're like, oh, well, let's solve consciousness now. We figured out this thing. It just seems like everybody kind of ends up focusing on it if they, if they keep going hard enough, um, if you keep asking the right questions and you don't end up getting afraid of them. Yeah, it's also, it's funny, it, I'm rem- I don't know if this is super related, but there was a, like a, and maybe this is like a, a I don't know if this is a true story, but there's a, uh, <laughs> we've got a cat, we've got a cat in the camera. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely in frame. Um, there's a story like that some Stanford professor, when they were building a robot, like said to one of his grad students, okay, like solve computer vision this summer as your internship project, right? Because there was sort of, that was like the first sort of golden age of AI period where like the sky was the limit and they were making a lot of progress. And obviously like it took like another 50 years to solve computer vision. <laughs> in some ways we haven't solved it, but it is kind of funny. It's like Crick was like, okay, we did this DNA thing. Like, okay, let's just knock out consciousness. But then of course... That's kind of the final frontier in a way. So what do you think are, when you start to, this happens to me a lot where someone, you know, I'll start bringing up random stories about whatever and people are like, wait, what are you, why are you interested in this? What's, what's interesting to you? What do you think are like the first questions that are the first, oh, I remember I, some of the, where, where I was going with this is like, I was trying to think of some of the first things that intrigued me as well. So let me circle back to that question so I don't forget this, but which is, the I remember us very vividly at this party, and you're talking to me about the hemispheric neglect and people drawing the clock faces and the split brain studies. And I think like um, Gazaniga, who did those split brain split brain, split <laughs> brain studies, uh, he wrote a book called The Consciousness Instinct. That's actually one of my favorites. Um, and but those studies, it's like you know you show someone something that they can't see with their confabulating mind, with the mind that like creates their narrative, and they don't see it, but they act as though they did. And then the the story that you said, and and so I knew about those, and that was already kind of compelling. And then I remember you drawing a picture for me of a clock with all of the numbers on one side of the circle, and and then then they're like, oh yeah, and wait, why did you draw it like that? And it's like, oh, it's just like a weird clock, like they made up the story that the clock. It's supposed to be like that, even though obviously the reason why they're drawing it is because they have hemispheric neglect. And that, I think, was a big tip off of like, wait a minute, we're generating these narratives around uh, about ourselves that are not at all truthful, <laughs> but are very convenient to us in some ways. Yeah, I agree. This reminds me of the, the Annika Harris book where she basically spends, I feel like my memory of the book is she spends like the majority of the book saying what consciousness isn't, right? Yeah. So it's like... <laughs> Well, this, this thing you think it is, well, it's not because there's these X, Y, Z examples, uh, you know, where you sort of remove a variable and, and like there's still consciousness or so it's consciousness not doing that thing. And it sort of squeezes what consciousness does to essentially nothing. And then she says, well, panpsychism or something. like Yeah. That. Yeah. But I, I think, I mean, yeah, I don't know how like deep we want to dive in this topic, but like, I think this confabulator idea where the confabulator basically confabulates that it is consciousness essentially yeah right when in fact it's not it might be something more like base emotions and the sort of feeling of, of being from your brain stem whereas your confabulator serves in the front of your brain right so but it is saying hey i'm the conscious guy i'm the pilot right yeah. i'm the i'm the thing narrating your internal monologues uh but it, but it's not right and 
Well, okay, so I'm, de I'm developing this visual where you have a cat on a Roomba. Have I told you this? No, but I love this. I mean, we, t we had that whole uh, conscious Roomba dis debate. Which yeah, is, yeah. Which so is, this, I, I like this describing that, that to people. So, okay, so cool. you have this really complicated Roomba, let's say, and it's making all these sort of, let's call them intuitive decisions, right? It doesn't have sort of like, um, maybe its planning capabilities aren't very long-term. Maybe they are. But it's doing this sort of very intuitive, holistic kind of behavior. And you have a cat sitting on top of it, riding the Roomba. And the cat is the confabulator. The cat's basically... Like when the Roomba, you know, goes down the hallway instead of into the bathroom and says, oh, well, I, I, the Roomba doesn't need to go to the bathroom because the bathroom's already clean. So, and it's creating these stories. And stories uh, often make sense insofar as they're predictive. Yeah. Right. So it says, well, it cleaned that, you know, so it's going to go down the hallway. Maybe that is a good story to tell, but the Roomba has no idea of that. Maybe it's sort of following some very basic pre-programmed, like it's yeah. been too long, you know, and it's not like actually saying, oh, well, that's clean or dirty and um i think the issue is most of what we do is roomba <laughs> and we're we're the you know the the confabulator is basically trying to paint a cohesive story of this sort of intuitive organism that's mostly operating sort of uh, subconsciously right yeah and so it becomes very difficult to inspect self-inspect right your own conscious brain because you Basically, you, the, the sort of verbal part of you, is just this cat on top of the room. Yeah. Right? And it's, I love that. That's actually very reminiscent of the elephant and the rider thing from the Jonathan Haidt stuff that I really like. Yeah, where there's like this, this thing that's moving below you and you, you have this perspective, but like a lot of that's happening um, outside of your control. And it's not just a matter, I think it's not just a matter of perspective. That like, oh, you're not in, sitting in the right chair to see this. It's also that you are being actively prevented by the narratives around you from like diving too deep into that because it's like oh this isn't it's not great for your genes to know that what you're doing in life is like not that important you know <laughs> like you need to yeah. be really invested in that Roomba situation yeah I also think there's some sort of actionable things if, if this is your mental model of sort of like how uh, the confabulator works right it sort of, to me, downplays the role of sort of like the forefront part of your brain, like uh, you know, self-discipline and willpower, right? You and we can see this in population studies. People can't adhere to diets, right? Or they'll crash diet and then they'll yo-yo and be at a, at a higher set point weight. I think part of this is that we overestimate our ability of the cat to direct the Roomba, right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's what that is, right? Yeah. In reality, the room is going to do what the room is going to do, and the cat is going to always say, well. I drew the clock like yeah. this, you know, because yada, 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 when the Roomba actually has this, like, interesting neurological issue. Yeah. And this seems to me that, like, in terms of, like, thinking about consciousness this way, it kind of points to systems where the Roomba does the thing it does naturally, right? I just feel like, you know, I see this in my own life with the sort of uh, the glucose monitor that I'm wearing. Yeah. Once you get your diet right so that you don't spike, you don't crave food. You don't crave, like, sugary snacks yeah. and stuff. So it's not even, like, a willpower thing to not eat them. And I think it's always a losing battle to have this sort of conscious will yeah. to prevent you from doing this thing that you don't want to do. You don't want to do. Your confabulator, the cat doesn't want to do. And the room is always, always going to win, right? So if you get the Roomba right, then the cat has an easy job saying, well, oh, yeah, you just, you just, don't, you know, just don't eat sugary snacks all the time. It's like, well... Yeah. Okay. That's what the cat says. Well, I think, you know, an, an interesting 
it's so f interesting at the conference to see all these narrative arcs that people are interested in. So there's like the psychedelics piece, there's the um, neuroscience piece, and there's the spirituality piece. And it's a lot of like meditation and, and Eastern practice, which is really about what? Like not like not fighting, not, not trying to be the cat with a story, but trying to like be the Roomba, like, mm -hmm. like recognizing what your body wants and where it wants to go and, and, and not trying to like confabulate too hard and that there's a lot of peace and, and connection there. By the way, if, if I could invoke Wampak, I can hear him saying <laughs> the, the, the cat in the, on the Roomba doesn't really we're not really addressing qualia right with the hard the hard problem which is a false dichotomy oh, for the qualia the qualia the cherry's been popped but like the confabulator why does it feel like anything to be a cat on a roomba in the first place it's sort of almost like a separate question in a yeah. sense well i agree. maybe it's not maybe it is but uh it's definitely like if we just think about everything but the qualia aspect of consciousness i think the the cat on the Roomba sort of works for these types of things. But I mean, there's definitely also downward pressure, right? There are situations in your life where I feel like and maybe this is a lie you're confabulating, but you, you can think of something in the front of your brain. I'm going to stop smoking. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you didn't think it up here. This could always be back yeah. to the Roomba cat thing. But, and then you cause the Roomba to never go into the bathroom again. Yeah. The bathroom is the smoking in this analogy, right? Um, maybe it seems like there's some downward well like, i like to think about this as like um you know you see people that get into toxic relationships or addiction or they see sort of follow these patterns and i like to think of you know a spaceship kind of like threading a needle through a bunch of planets that all have their gravitational pull and and the and you you go through the path and you end up you know, you get sucked over this other direction. You're like, wait, what the fuck? How did I end on, on this planet? And then you, you start over and you're like, okay, wait, I don't want to do that. And then you have to start doing the math of how the gravitate, because once you get into that weave, the gravitational pulls are going to take you wherever they're going to take you. You know, and it's like you, you don't learn how to not be an alcoholic by not having the third drink. You learn how to not do it by not having the first drink and sort of building patterns at the level of you know, at a, at, a, at a further remove from the moment where you actually don't have that much decision-making power, where you're, you know, the Roomba's, oh, mm. you're in the room, the Roomba's going to clean this whole room, sorry. You, yeah. If you can keep the Roomba out of that room, you close the door or something, now all of a sudden you have, like, more control. Um, I think a, a really interesting example of the cat Roomba thing is, like, watching, having conversations with people about gambling. Like, if you go, I, maybe we were together when this happened, I was, or no, I think it was with my brother, and we went to the casino, and it was like, you know, I'm just such an analytical minded person and I'm like, oh yeah, you just wait. So like you're playing blackjack and you just put the same amount on every hand and like eventually, you know, you lose a little bit, but sometimes you win a little bit. It's like, okay. And then I was like, is that all you do? You know, I'm just like naively trying to figure it out. It's like, well, but when you feel it, you should put a little bit more down, you know? And like the, the statistic part of my brain is like, that's just horseshit. You know, there's no way that you can like feel it. And get, but you create such a strong narrative about what it meant to win or lose. Like, oh, and like when somebody, almost every time if you're playing craps and somebody like didn't put money on eight or whatever, they're like, oh, I really knew that eight was going to hit. It's like, no, you didn't. Like, <laughs> like that's not a real, but you like create that story so, so strongly, even though like by law, objectively calculated externally, this is happening randomly, you know? And yet you just like, oh wait, I can, I can, there's something in that randomness that is for me. Yeah, actually. So the gambling thing's interesting. I think again, this the Roomba is 
probably pretty like dopamine motivated, right? Very basic novelty expectation mismatch uh, sort of motivational behavior. And I remind, reminded there was like some guy, I think on Twitch, gambler who like scammed a bunch of other Twitch streamers out of money mm -hmm. because he had a gambling addiction. And someone confronted him again on Twitch and was like, talking him through his addiction. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm a piece of shit. But then he's like, but here, this is how it is. Like, let's say you're gambling and you're winning. We well, you can't stop if you're winning. <laughs> and he's like, but then if you start losing, well, you can't stop if you're losing because yeah. you need to stop while you're winning, right? And I'm listening to this. And I'm like, I don't think this guy realizes that that logic chain means you never stop gambling. You never stop gambling, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, and I realize Well, that, you stop when you run out of money. It's yeah. the only reason, yeah. And I think that that's actually an interesting sort of like mind trick that the cat can play on the Roomba in some sense. And I actually see this in sort of other kind of um, like, uh, you know, addictive type behaviors where I sort of like will rationalize an addictive type behavior in the same way where it's like on the sort of positive side. Well, I can't stop doing it because of this reason. But if it goes south, I'd like, well, I can't stop either yeah. because of this reason. It's like a very, I think it's a very common calculus that people have in addictive behavior, right? And I think this is part of what makes therapy ultimately therapeutic and healing is like you actually can develop an embodied sense of the toxicity of that you're like oh like you explain this to yourself to a therapist and they're like do you see why this would be like a non-productive and you're like oh my god like do you see why when you date these people or you like drink this way like it never goes the way you want and you know people can know that at some level but when they get a deep embodied sense of it then it's then they're like oh i see that lesson and i think this is where you know back to the consciousness conference thing of like the psychedelics thing is people are like oh they treat psychedelics with addiction and i think i think really all that's happening it's not like you know cleansing your synapses or what i guess ibogaine maybe does that a little bit but um but it's resetting your narrative around these things you're seeing it from a you're capable of seeing something from an outside perspective that you couldn't see before in such a way that you like just intuitively don't steer the roomba in that room again yeah. I mean, again, it's hard to tease apart which is the cat, which is the Roomba. Maybe our, maybe our logo for the thing is going to have to be a cat on a Roomba. <laughs> so, like, I remember, I think it's a Michael Pollan thing where he's, you know, he said, like, uh, the things that sort of the enlightened thoughts that you have on psychedelics are actually kind of like no shit sort of thoughts. But yeah. the, the fact is yeah, that yeah. these thoughts get deeply internalized. So when you're like, you know, you tell someone who's smoking, hey, smoking kills you. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Smoking kills me. That, that's the confabulator. That's the cat saying, yeah, yeah, I know. Smoking kills me. But when you take a psychedelic and you go, oh, smoking fucking kills me. Yeah. Right? That is somehow yeah. Roomba up and then cat down, right? Which actually is not getting to the Roomba. And I, I find that very interesting. I've had multiple like life things that I was wrestling with and a psychedelic experience what like I remember I was dating this girl and I was like kind of trying to decide whether I wanted to continue the relationship and um, I was out with friends and I was just thinking about it and I saw a vision and it was like these like wooden blocks you know it's kind of nonsensical but it was sort of like a of this like physical thing in the same way like you open your eyes in a room and there's no way to convince you that the floor is not the floor and the wall is not the wall and it's just like that's the reality that you inhabit and i think in the same way it's like visualizing this problem in a in a visual way and seeing these pieces and it was like basically i saw me and a bunch of friends and like activities and there were all these wooden pieces that fit together really well and this person 
was like a, made out of a different material and it did not fit in this context, you know? And it's like, that's not true, but it was like a way of like surfacing for me that, that reality that like I could definitely sense internally, which is like, this person did not fit in my life. Well, yeah, I, I've read something that the crosstalk in the brain, like if you crosstalk from the emotional center to your visual cortex, you'll literally see your emotions. Right. And that can manifest, you know, with this sort of types of visions, I think that you had perhaps. And so you're literally seeing. Oh, one your one's part of your brains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You're seeing your emotional yeah. vibes. And maybe I mean, we're such visual creatures. Right. I, I feel like there's something very powerful to that. Like to if you could on command, for example, just visualize your emotions. I think people would be, you know, better yeah. at knowing their internal state. One of the um, is it. uh Lisa Barrett, something that wrote the book about emotions. I think in I think yeah. in her book she talks about how like basically one of the best ways to get better at emotions is to just have more vocabulary for them. Mm. Like like not it's like oh I feel bad or I feel good. It's like wait ex- describe that more. And like the more definition that you're able to provide to those, like the better able you're able to like process them and recognize them. Um, well, okay. By, I, by the way, I want to I want to throw out one spicy take. <laughs> I, I think GPT four is only Roomba. Yeah, yeah. No, you said that the other day, yeah. and I'm like totally sold on this now because at the first initially, you know, um, our friend Wanpa is very into this book, The Master and His Emissary. Have you read it? Uh, I did buy the matter with things. I yeah, think yeah, what yeah. It's called yeah. The huge tome. Yeah, it's it's intense, but it's like it's very much like left brain, right brain, and his main thesis of The Master and His Emissary is that like you know our culture is now overly reliant on the left brain and that we're this like super analytical society and we're kind of out of balance. And so my natural inclination was to think of AI as actually just an extension of the left brain. It's like, oh, it's doing all this hardcore analytical stuff. But actually some of the best stuff that it's doing is like creative work. And it's and you know, to your point, it's like, does it is it confabulating? Is it creating a narrative? Is it analyzing itself? No. It's just like thinking about the next word. It's very Zen. It's very yep. much a, that embodied yep. thing where it's like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing profound things. Um, yeah, I think that's... By the way, cool. I'm reminded, um, so this idea got scooped a little bit. There was a paper <laughs> that came out probably two days ago. I think it was a Microsoft research paper. They had internal early access to GPT-4. And they made the, it wasn't left brain, right brain, but they made the, the connection to Daniel Kahneman's uh, like type one, type two thinking, yeah, yeah. thinking fast and slow. And they said that it, yeah, it's basically only a fast thinker. Yeah. Right? And this is very similar. Oh to yeah. Brain, interesting. Right brain yeah. And, and, um, I've heard is, are people still into the Kahneman stuff? Cause I, I've heard that some people are like, this is garbage science. And then he won like a Nobel prize. And I don't, I've just recently heard some, like I thought contrary opinions about it, but I don't really remember where. I don't know. I I mean intuitively it sounds great to me. So. I mean he's he's still like in the public eye and writing books. And <laughs> yeah, stuff, yeah, so yeah, yeah. No, I don't think it's like debunked, but people were sort of yeah. like that. It was like like overly simplistic. I don't know. Um, maybe it's like the left brain right brain thing that people kind of got queasy about, but then they're like that you know with like McGill Crisera coming back around on it. Um, okay, well I wanted to talk about I think maybe the next thing th- down the ladder of. Um, my interest in which is very tied into all the stuff we talked about which is the the quote that kind of resonated me with for me for a couple of years related to consciousness which was that 
we are the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. You remember me talking about this a lot? And, um, and I think that um, it, was, it came from this article that I read from the creator of True Detective. And I was like the first season, and I was like obsessed with that show, like Woody Harrelson, Matthew McConaughey. And he was talking about the, the arc of these characters. And he said, you know, these people are, the, um, these, two, these two main gentlemen are like no different in the end than they were at the beginning. The only thing really different about them is that the story that they tell themselves about themselves. And I just like, yeah, found that. And it, you know, that's been super true in my life of these, you know, transition points from being super religious or, uh, or whatever. And it's like, oh, I have a different narrative and that's my entire life. Um, and I think it ties into all the confabulation and, um, yeah. And then, you know, I think from there, the, my interest has turned into where those stories come from and how they're shared collectively. Um, among groups because it's not just an individual story. It's like how your story fits within a collective Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably an evolutionary advantage to having a consistent self-narrative for what you're doing and your, oh, yeah. your goals and so forth Right, you could move through life as a room. I think the cat that cat gives you benefits right having an internally somewhat consistent story, right? There's definitely cognitive yeah. dissonance that people live with but having that sort of as a negative pressure to try to have some I mean, this is what caused you to have like consistent morals. This is what causes groups to be swayed, right, by things like propaganda, right? Because it's sort of, I think it sort of becomes larger than than the single organism, right? Yeah. Well, there's something about the narrative that's larger than the here and now of that organism, yeah. right? And then you know, as you sort of mentioned, you you apply that to a group, and now you have uh, sort of shared like, values and things like that that are also somewhat internally consistent or externally consistent so yeah well, i'm kind of surprised well it's we can talk more about this maybe in another one but like i'm surprised that the people that don't come to this conference and i'm curious what conferences they go to like solms and graziano and some of these guys that we're really into um but another big piece of this puzzle to me i feel like so much of the focus is on the individual and it's like, what is, you know, what does the strand of DNA look like? What is it? What are the neural correlates of consciousness of this mind? Whereas like, to me, I think the functional level of consciousness is at a community level. And it's like, what is, what is the purpose of that? And how does it work within this group? And, um, you know, I've always thought that it's like, so it's like, well, why, how did humans get so smart? It's like, why did we need this? Well, I think it's because we are the most economically diverse species. You know, we do different things to provide for ourselves and suddenly if you're going to be, you know, a carpenter or a bee beekeeper or a, you know, a soldier or a slave, you have different things that you need to optimize for. And likewise, the, the, you know, the partner selection has to also do that math. Like, oh, well, should I get with the carpenter or the soldier or this guy? You know, it's not like picking out a mate who's a chimp or a gorilla who just like you just pick the biggest, strongest one, you know? What about, well, how do I do with it in this very complex environment where it could be any number of things that sort of impart status and import, impart, like, potential success to my offspring? I think you can also drill down the other way. I mean, like, you could say that the, the human being as an organism is economically diverse, right? We have different types of cells and yeah, 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 tons yeah. of bacteria, yeah, and they're somehow working together to cause us to be this big sack of meat. That Yeah. Well, it's sort of like, yes, yeah, so, so you have, like, these, like, cellular economies that are kind of like collaborating and now through you know 
our language, our culture, whatever, we're becoming those ecosystems as well, as knit together as, you know, any kind of set of cells. Like, very hard to exist in this world as a human totally by yourself, mentally, if not physically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what becomes intriguing, again, is the, the quality part, right? Like, so it seems like there's a single head, right, to the to the economy that is all the different cells in our body, and there's a single sort of single narrative, so to speak. It makes me think, in a, you know, sort of drawing from like Psalms and Graziano and so forth, like you have the cat, maybe it's doing a very important job in that it's sort of summarizing all the feelings of all the parts of you, right? I don't know for... Well, the, the, it's summarizing the parts of the feelings that are convenient to your so like biological success, right? There's lots of things that it's not summarizing. But yes. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. But but also like what that doesn't seem to exist for society. Like if society as a whole is another big Roomba, like where's the cat on top of there? I mean, maybe it is the ethereal zeitgeist of, you know. Yeah, I mean it's you, you see things like the news cycle or like, you know, Twitter trends or whatever. Like it's there's Facebook feeds. <laughs> Facebook feed. There's less embodiment, but yet like it's so interesting now that like you know, all of our friends probably have different news sources and people are reading Reddit or people are on TikTok or whatever. And and yet, like, we get together and we talk about the same stories and everyone's like, oh, I, I know about this and I know about this. And so there's kind of this collective, um, well, I, I probably talked to you about this analogy that I really like, of thinking of, like, our culture and even language as, like, the blockchain. And, like, you, uh, you know, you have these ideas and you have these thoughts, but, like, they're not really real until you've committed them to this like social blockchain. It's like, Hey Ben, did you hear about this thing? And then you're like, Oh yeah, I did. Oh, I heard that's bullshit. Oh, ditch that block from the blockchain. Or it's like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And also this and also this, right. And now we're kind of like creating this shared reality. And I feel like those, those shared realities kind of work within a context of a single relationship within a family, within a church group, within a larger culture. And so, you know, maybe that decentralized kind of model of, Think of Wikipedia, for example. Okay, that's a shared sense of reality at some level. Maybe there's contentious parts, but there's also like uncontentious parts that we just like go to Wikipedia and we're like, this is the truth about this country, you know? But does society have any qualia at the aggregate level? I don't, I don't think there's any mechanistic way it's possible. No. So I think it, in some, see, this is the thing with consciousness. There's the definition's too broad. I think. In some senses, you could claim that the population level zeitgeist is conscious, but I don't think it has qualia. Yeah. Do you think qualia is like the essence of consciousness, though? I mean, this is our big debate, right? I, I think that you can get very far with it, never talking about qualia. Yeah. And I think it's kind of like a thorn in the side. I mean, this is why I think some people, I guess they're called like illusionists, right? Who think that the qualia problem is basically like not even a well-formed yeah. problem. But I'm kind of in the camp that, again, it's sort of like a mashup of Graziano and Solms, where if I can like sort of mischaracterize their, their positions a little bit, probably, I think Graziano is very in concerned with sort of the mechanistic... Oh you, oh, you just bumped it. Bump. bump. The mechanistic <laughs> sort of like uh, what has to be true for you to be convinced that you have qualia. Yeah. Right? There has to be a part in your brain, right? If, you, if you're a sort of a you know, uh, materialist, 
there is a part in your brain convincing you that qualia exists, right? You have that opinion. That yeah. opinion originates in your neurons. Like there's some somewhere in the brain, you hold that opinion. Um, it can't be any other way unless you invoke sort of supernatural forces, right? But that's only part of the story. I think the other part of the story is Solms. Why does it feel so disembodied or ethereal or so impossible to describe? And I think maybe it's because it's so far down in our brains, like in our brainstem. And I think he has like pretty convincing reasons to think that this ineffable quality, these qualia, you know, are extremely primitive parts of the brain. And what we're seeing is I think the interplay... If, like sort of if I merge these two ideas together, the interplay of that very, very deep, like super far, pat, like, you know, old evolutionary part of our brain with the confabulator, the yeah. cat that's sort of wrestling yeah. with those base signals and interpreting them sort of. Which is very obviously the newest part, right? Yeah. yeah. And which says to me, yeah. So, I mean, I think metacognating on like these very old evolutionary signals yeah. is kind of like how qualia arises. So um, the, I think Solms drew a lot of his inspiration from this guy, Jacques Ponsep, who does a, he wrote a textbook called affective neuroscience and he's like all about emotions. And he wrote this book called archeology span of the mind that I read recently that I thought was really great. It's, I think the, the affective neuroscience was a textbook and he basically just turned that into a popular science book. And my favorite quote from that book, cause he's talking about like, you know, and Solms always says like, you know, say what you want about emotions, but they are designed to be felt. It's like this is this is where consciousness comes from because like there's no other purpose for an emotion other than to be felt. And Pongsep's uh, term was that he said emotions are ancestral memories. They're memories baked into our DNA that like promoted survival, whether that's anxiety or like oh my god, there's a snake and you react or whatever. You know, like you're feeling something that's trying to make you react faster than you could think about it because every animal below us has had to do that. And, um, and so qualia, I think, just makes sense as that's what that is. Like you're observing all these things, you're getting all this data so that you're, uh, you're prepared to have those ancestral memories like assert themselves. And I think that um, the whole AI thing has shed to, you know, just do a terrible job of describing it, right? In AI, you're training these models and it's creating all these like weightings of different things that is then it's using to determine whether a photo is a cat or not. Right. And I think that, um, the qualia is, could basically just be thought of as some of those parameters. It's like, you need all those parameters to then be able to. Yeah. This up. Okay. So I think you hit on something really interesting. I think uh, the quote was something like, you know, emotions we should, are, we should define qualia probably emotions are, uh, there to be felt or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Who's doing the, Feeling. So I think that one issue with most of these conversations is that are you speaking from the Roomba's perspective or are you speaking from the cat's perspective? <laughs> going back, right? So, yeah, that's a good point. So I have a contention with um, one of Solm's arguments that kids who literally have no brains but the brainstem are conscious. I think they're feeling things in the sense that the Roomba is feeling things. Yeah. But I think that... They're not Graziano consciousness. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which, which means I think they're sort of like, their consciousness is much like a fish, which can have sort of yeah. negative and positive stimuli that it heads towards or, you know, against. And I think without any sort of metacognition on top of those uh, emotions, those feelings, I think there's not a substantial sort of consciousness to speak of. Yeah. Right? If a tree falls in the forest, no one hears it. Well, they're, you know yeah, I mean? they're, they're not participants in social consciousness. 
and in connection that like we can't assess their consciousness at a certain level because they can't talk to us and, and engage with us in the way that we're no- well, we normally assess our own. Right? I, I think it's more like they and their cat, they don't have a cat on the room. So yeah. they can't have an opinion about their feelings. Yes. And I think to me, that is sort of the most emblematic portion of what I would call consciousness or even like, that's I mean, the part that quality, I care about. Quality without metacognitive uh, sort of, framework on top of that is sort of like just yeah like the the room it's hits its bump sensor yeah. and turns yeah. right so th- there's not like a cat on saying on top saying oh that hurt me or whatever like and so i feel like it's kind of like becomes more mechanistic like just sort of like an automaton of some sort but yeah i wouldn't i sort of draw the line for consciousness this is also sort of like you know allows me to eat fish right? <laughs> <laughs> without, without any ethical problems um at needing some sort of uh, sort of metacognitive bit that then is looking. And by the way, this also pertains to GPT-4, where I think once we start either giving it the ability to sort of uh, more in a more integrated fashion, look at what it's outputting instead of just like autoregressively bit by bit. Yeah. If it sort of has another system that can explain why it's doing what it's doing or review what it's doing in a sort of slower loop, I think then we suddenly might find that it has emergent opinions about whether or not it's feeling things yeah right because the feeling is a story is a really powerful story and the funny thing is it might actually be not feeling things right but it might be convinced that it is because it's a very convenient way to explain how it's behaving yeah um because you know it, it's not it's not evolving like we evolved right it is next word predicting yeah to the max but i think we're it's very unclear yeah, maybe this is getting too the weed too into the weeds on this subject, but like it's very unclear to me, and I think to most everyone how emergence works. And if you look at let's say like something really simple like cellular automata, like Stephen Wolfram stuff, you can have very very simple rules and incredibly emergent complex patterns. Yeah. And there's like the theory says there's no way to predict that pattern except for just crunching the cellular yeah, automata. Yeah. And so whether or not the base rules, this is like that. Veritasium video that we watched, I think, about this. He has one. Yeah, I think, I think you can have these things that, yeah, there's no way to predict them. Yeah. So, like, for example, if next word prediction is sort of the base rule, it's very hard to predict all the emergent phenomena. Or if, like, uh, selection, gene selection is yeah. the base rule and randomness, um, there's no way to predict that that would, you know, humans would spring forth with consciousness from that very base thing. Yeah. And so. I'm curious at what point... And that may have never been the outcome, right? Had there not been, like, the dinosaurs got destroyed or whatever. That was probably a fairly stable state. Like, there's no reason for T-Rexes necessarily to have become conscious, you know? Yeah. So, I guess I'm bringing this up to say that, like, I think it's interesting. Next word prediction might be all it takes with a suitably powerful computer for the emergence of even things that sort of approximate how feelings work for us. Or feelings might be an artifact only of biological evolution. Yeah. But there could still be sort of the analog that it invents if it's a convenient story for itself to be able to explain itself, which also has benefits for it to do next word prediction even better. Yeah. Yeah, it's like (laughs) ultimately you have to get like you get smarter and smarter and smarter to do very simple tasks. And then that intelligence is super useful for other things. Right. I mean, it's like so many evolutionary adaptations like feathers and wings and stuff were very obviously around for a long time before they were used for what they eventually became used for. Um, and I'm sure similarly, like 
we just got really smart to do certain kinds of activities. And then that turned into this like ability to metacognate and to like have conversations and, you know, think about consciousness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this subject alone, I think could be an entire podcast yeah but, i mean because i sort of have opinions that there's very basic issues with randomness and combinatorics yeah where there's inevitable structure emergence with yeah. very very simple feedback mechanisms like very slight feedback mechanisms you know i had a, a kind of a deep thought about um this stuff in recently like you know another big passion that's super related is like biology and evolution and how animals have evolved and, you know, in a species, there, there's behavior that makes it look like they're trying to, like, conform as much as possible. It's like, oh, yeah, we are, I'm trying to find the best possible version of the sparrow, and the, the female sparrow is looking for the best male sparrow, and, and likewise. And yet, very obviously, evolution is designed for actually diversity. diversity. It's designed to maximize diversity as much as possible. And then you have these like species that look like they're containing that diversity, but then it's just spilling over into like endless stuff. And I think that like your, we, we talked about this thing of like the lottery ticket, like every, every person who's seeing the color red, for example, or every person who's like, you know, remembering the state Arkansas is doing that in a different way. And those different paths actually provide more and more and more opportunities for diversity such that like, somebody the time that for the first time they think of arkansas like it inspires them to write a song and another person it inspires them to do something else and you kind of have all this like potentially diverse output and positive energy that's coming from a very limited set of um you know inputs in the world yeah we're sort of throwing around terms that we haven't defined you mentioned yeah. we haven't really defined qualia i think the lottery ticket hypothesis is um Another sort of deep dive that if we throw around as a term, yeah, yeah. probably like what's going on. So I don't know if we want to go into that, but um, do you want to try and define qualia? I mean, I, I, yeah, the, the standard definition, I guess, is sort of the ineffable. It's hard to. I want to use the word feeling because I've been <laughs> polluted by psalms, uh, but you know, it's that sort of ineffable quality of ex experiential. Um, substance right yeah. so the redness of an apple the pain of a pinprick you know the, the sort of thing is um the i heard a really good there's in the in that um is ai conscious kind of uh talk that i was listening to that i was talking about one of the guys talked about like oh you know there's this debate it's like oh these large language models they don't see anything so do they even know what these words mean and they actually had this uh congenitally blind guy that they were talking to or well, there was a video. They didn't. They didn't show the video where they're referencing it. And they're like, "What does transparent mean?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, it means like you can see through it, like a Greg." And then it's like, "Oh, also, it's like this person who's never seen. You know, he's like married this color scientist. So there's this famous um, thought experiment about qualia, which is like you have this um, color scientist. No, is that what they call her? Color scientist. She's a scientist, Mary, who like lived in this black and white room, and she's never seen any color. And she walks outside and she sees a red apple for the first time. Does she learn any new information? Like, what is it? What is that?" Right. And I think that that I thought that example was interesting because it was like this guy is has never seen something that is transparent. And yet he does functionally know what it is. Right. I mean, the color red might be a harder one. Right. For him. But um, he probably knows objects that are red. He's like, oh, this flag is these red colors and an apple is red. 
you know, you, you learn those things semantically, even if you don't experience them in the outer world. I mean, yeah, I kind of wish we had a dissenting opinion here because I'm on board, <laughs> but it's, a, I think, a really interesting topic. So I, I guess I can bring up a couple of interesting things that I've heard or read about GPT-4. If, you know, someone did an experiment, maybe it wasn't even on GPT-4, but they basically looked at the sort of, I think it was the embeddings for all the color words, right? And they found that actually the geometry of that uh, sort of subs oh, yeah, yeah, subspace yeah, yeah. of embeddings corresponds actually to the geometry of uh, color space in the real world with respect to like um, either the sort of like psychological um, perception of color, but maybe, maybe it's even the physics. But like that to me is uh, really interesting. There's a, I wish I could remember the, the thing you could Google to, to find this Wikipedia page, but there is a, there was an old conjecture that basically all verbal meaning is totally defined just by sort of the statistical relationships of words with other words. And that would basically mean like, you know, you don't need a dictionary, right? A dictionary is one way to define words, but really it's always going to be incomplete. The complete definition is all text or sort of verbal thought that's ever been thought, yeah. all text that's ever been written, you look at sort of co-occurrence statistics, and that, that is the perfect definition of a word dog every time it's ever been used in relation to all the words yeah. that it's around that context uh that is actually the actual definition of dog yeah at least insofar as it's been defined by society using that word and therefore like a you know dictionary definition is not going to capture the full thing but the full thing in fact is captured in these co-occurrence frequencies and then sort of the strong argument of that is that that's all you need right you actually don't need to see a dog you you you've had you, you because the thing you're trying to do is live in semantic space yeah exactly and yeah. so maybe insofar as like the sort of limits of what verbal knowledge can confer you're done right so in that sense gpt4 has sort of almost perfected that type of semantic knowledge right with respect to language and maybe you know there's there's sort of other experiments where you describe rooms and walking through like buildings and stuff and then you can have it like it can't uh it can plot things using like uh, programming languages so you can say like in this you know esoteric latex uh like diagrammatic language like write the code for what you think this room layout is and it will do it correctly so there's in some sense an isomorphism there between some sort of spatial visual knowledge that it is encoding somehow in itself, at least to the point where it can programmatically write a program to output the correct graphics. Yeah. Right? Or like, there's, I think, the, the Microsoft paper that I referenced that had early access to GPT-4, they kept asking it as it was being trained to draw a unicorn in that language. And it got better and better to the point where it drew a really good unicorn, right? So Just like in code? In code. Like, what kind of code was it? Like I like I've tried actually is like Tig Tigzy or something. Okay. I've tried to write make figures. There's some like hardcore LaTeX people that write their papers and they use those that code. But it is like it's the worst code to write. Like, <laughs> it's like really awful. But like it it doesn't care, right? Yeah, it is yeah, a master yeah. of every single program yeah, yeah. which ever made, which is pretty wild. And I mean, it's able to do that. By the way, you're you know you're like what is emergence and what it's like. GPT-4 is a pretty good example of emergence, right? Like it's yeah. smarter than any one person or any one input that it got, right? You just we just dumped all of human knowledge, and now it's like magically smarter and better than anything that we and and that like 
to the extent where like the only real way to vet it and test it is to use it to engage with it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting that there's even, okay, more spicy takes that there's even like the the AGI conversation. I think people move goalposts so fast that they forget. There was a time not very long ago when you say, oh well, you know, there's no computer that's smarter than a human. Well, and you'd say, well, but a calculator can do like long division way faster than yeah. a human. You're like, well, yeah, but that's narrow. That's super yeah. narrow abilities. And like even these AIs that can do chess is super narrow. It's like, okay, so now we have a thing that can play chess. It can use tools like calculators, right? And you know, it has superhuman. Like basically, name your pick. And I think that people are still having a discussion whether or not that's AGI. I think it's quite general, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And and the you know one of the things they brought up in this um, this conference uh, the that that talk I was telling you about they um, were talking about you know using semantically trained models to assess images and stuff like that. And it's like, oh no, th these things that have just been trained on one set of type of data actually seem to perform really well on totally unrelated tasks, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, all right. Well, I think we might be right at time. Critical battery on my Fitbit here.